invite you to open with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I want to welcome you to week 2 of a series that has us walking through um, this book, the book of Colossians, a book that lifts high the supremacy as well as the sufficiency of Christ. And since we had a week off last week, I want to um, begin today by just kind of bringing us all back up to speed um, on this book that this letter to the church at Colossus was probably the first letter written um, by Paul in a group of writings known as the prison epistles. Um, other books include Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Philemon. And just let this sink in for a second. Paul is in prison in Rome. And I can imagine that being in prison would probably give someone a lot of time to think. Never been there, so don't go do my background check now. Never been there, but I can imagine, I can only imagine that being in prison would give a lot of time to think about things. But it, instead of trying to figure out a way to escape or instead of just sitting around singing sad songs and feeling sorry for himself, um, that's not what Paul is doing. Instead, Paul is concerned for the churches. Paul is concerned um, with um, the church at Coloss. He's concerned with what's going on. So in, in the middle of this letter, he, he's... Um, praying for the church, he's encouraging the church, and he is even trying to correct some of the things that he is hearing that, that might be going on in the church. And as we said a couple weeks ago, Paul is going to address two problems um, with the church at Colossus. The first is he's going to enforce the truth that for this church, Rome was not their hope, that Jesus was their hope. And they were tempted, they were being tempted to trust in Rome, to put their trust in what Rome could do uh, for them. And Paul's writing going, no, we don't put our trust in Rome, we put our trust in Jesus. And then Paul is going to address the, the truth, I'm about to say this twice, so make sure you, you get this. Paul's going to address the truth that anything plus Jesus equals nothing, and that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So let me just say it again. He's going to address the truth that anything plus Jesus equals nothing, whereas Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the, the reality is this church was struggling with the fact that Jesus was supreme, and they were struggling with the fact that Jesus was enough. They were struggling um, with that. They were walking in that picture. But before we jump in this morning, let me just remind you of two things. First of all, over 2,000 years later, let me just say this, Jesus is still supreme and he's still enough. He's still supreme and he is still enough. He's still enough for us. He's still sufficient in our lives. And then secondly, I want to remind us this morning that these words are being written by Paul. Sometimes we forget that who is writing these words, a former Christian persecutor, person who wanted Christians to die because of their the faith. And this Christian persecutor had a life-changing encounter with the, with the risen Lord while he was on his way to condemn more Christians. And so he forever changed by the gospel. So he writes this letter to this church and he begins kind of like you would a parent conference or like you would if you're meeting with an a, a, a employee. He begins by the positive things. You, know, you always begin on the positive note and then of course you say, but there, there's also some things that are going on. So Paul begins on a positive note, praising the churches for, for things. And we talked about this um, two weeks ago, things that would be good for us to desire um, as a faith family now. And then Paul 
um, where we're going to be this morning in verses 9 through 14 begins to list his prayer list for this church, for the church at Colossus. He begins to, to tell them what he's praying for them about. And let me, it got me thinking about what my prayer list would be for this church. If I were to lay that before you, my prayer list, first of all, we don't have time for me to lay all of my prayer list before you, but my ultimate prayer list for this church is that we would be a church that would glorify God by making disciples who would serve the world. Um, that's our, our mission, our goal, that's, that's what we're about, but also that we would be a church united, um, united by not our preferences, but united by our purpose. And even more than that, united by the Spirit of God within us. We would be a people that would love one another, um, that we would um, serve one another, that we would even, as, as the epistles say, that we would outdo one another in service, that we would just serve each other that well. There's so many other things I could think of and, and to pray for over this faith family, that God would allow us not to grow weary in well-doing, that we would just continue and press on and persevere so many things, but this morning we're going to look at what Paul is, is praying over a people who had been rescued themselves from, from darkness and what Paul wants them to do and to become because of that. So I want us this morning to dive into the Word and let's see some of the things that God has placed on Paul's heart for this church and maybe, just maybe, as we walk through these verses, God would put some of these things in our own hearts, our own desires um, for us, for this, his church, um, for his glory, not just in this community, not just in this, in this city, but in, in the world. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14 together. When you get there, let me hear you say. Amen. And it says this in verse 9, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, as we Continue to come to your word today, God. Our prayers also that we would be a word-centered people. We would be a people, God, who love your word and long for your word. And we don't just know your word, but we live out your word. We do what your word says. Lord, just speak into our hearts today through your spirit, by your word, all for your glory. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So think about what Paul is doing here. So Paul is praying for this church, a church that he had never been to, a church that he had never met um, these people, but yet he had heard and he was praying for them. And got me thinking, we pray for and we wish for um, many things for those whom we love. So we, we pray a lot of things over those that we love. Yet, if we're going to be honest, how many of those things that we pray for and wish for oftentimes focus on just the worldly side, the, the temporary side, and not on the eternal side. 
Sometimes if we're not careful, our deepest prayers for those that we love, whether it be spouses or whether it be children or family member or friends, focuses on things that are only temporary and we don't pray with the fervor that we should for things that are eternal. We don't pray for things that will affect the kingdom of God for kingdom purposes. So Paul's prayer for the church at Colossus is a, a catalog of blessings that he wants God to, to give them. Listen to it. He, he wants them to have knowledge and spiritual wisdom, understanding, a worthy walk, eagerness to please God, fruitfulness, growth in knowledge, strength, endurance, patience, and joy, all inside of the will of God. These are things that would not only impact us if we had those and grew in those these are things that would also impact the world around us. If we grew in these things, it wouldn't just impact us. It would impact others around us. Yet, yet think about it. Why is it that some professing believers have not grown in any of these areas in the time that they have claimed to be Christians? Why is it that some grow in their faith and grow and are deeply rooted in the gospel and in Christ and others who claim to be Christians haven't grown at all? All? Dwight Pentecost asked the question, and we're going to show it on the screen. It says this, and I'm going to fill in some of the blanks. It says, um, what makes some Christians spiritual giants and what makes others remain weak? Many would believe that it is the result of a spiritual inheritance or personality. They were just born more spiritually minded. So some think that others were just born more spiritually minded than others, but the Bible tells us we're all born dead dead in trespasses and sins. He goes on, still others suggest that it has to do with the circumstances of one's salvation, that maybe those that are saved and brought forth from the gutter have more of an impact than those who were saved in a Christian home and um, have no experiences. But again, the Bible tells us we are all equally lost. So then he goes on, still others suggest that, or excuse me, others would suggest that ministry or service for Christ is the ticket. But we all know if we're not careful, serving Christ can replace knowing Christ. We can be busy doing instead of busy becoming. And we can let what we do for Christ replace actually knowing Christ. And that can be a, a burden for us. So then he ends this way. Therefore, the key principle to growth can be reduced to one word. Appetite. Appetite. Are we desiring Christ? Are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Do we want him? Many people, many professing Christians aren't growing. And let me just give you two pictures here. One is because maybe as professing Christians, they're really not Christians. And so they, they can't grow because they don't know the Lord. But maybe another reason is they're hungering and thirsting for things that aren't eternal. They're hungering, thirsting for things that aren't righteous and aren't righteousness. They don't have an appetite for Christ or they don't understand what they've been rescued from and they don't understand what they've been rescued for. They don't understand what they've been rescued from and what they've been rescued for. So as we continue this series in the book of Colossians, my prayer is that all of us would deepen in our appetite for Christ, that we would want more of Christ. We would want Christ and Christ alone. So this morning, as we look at this picture of, of a people who were rescued from darkness, I want us to unpack three truths that show us 
um, the reality of our own rescue and what we have been rescued um, from and, and for as we look at the Paul, Paul's words here to um, the church at Colossus. So the first truth is this. We have been rescued from darkness so that we might walk in the will of God. And let me just say, some of these points are going to sound a little bit like what we did two weeks ago, but I'm willing to bet that if I wouldn't have said it, you wouldn't have remembered. But I just want to be honest and just throw that out there. But we've been rescued from darkness that we might walk in the will of God. Paul says, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. I think of the words of Ephesians 5, where Paul also writes, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The question, what is God's will for my life, is one of the most commonly asked questions in Western Christianity today. So many people are asking that question, what is God's will for my life? How can I find God's will for my life? There are countless Christians who are confused and wondering um, how can they possibly find out what God has in store for them. And the good news for them and for all of us this morning, get this, God's will is not lost. God's will is not lost, therefore we don't have to find it. God's will is not lost, so we don't have to find it. God is not a universal um, Easter bunny who hides his will all over the world and he hops away saying, come and find my will before it's too late. That's not God. God doesn't hide his will and then say to us, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer. Oh, sorry, you, you missed it. Now you're, you're cold. That is not the picture of the word of God. What if, what if God's will is not some secret that we need to uncover somewhere what if God makes his will very clear to us? And get this, what if God is actually more passionate about us knowing his will than we are about knowing his will? And what if the ultimate question for every one of us in this room is not, what is God's will for my life? What if the ultimate question is, am I willing to do God's will? I think sometimes people or so quickly go, what is God's will? What is God's will? What is God's will? Without asking, am I even willing to do it? In fact, I read this quote this week. Listen to this. For most people don't want, or most people don't want to know God's will in order to do it. They want to know God's will in order to consider it. Most people don't want to know God's will in order to do it. They want to know God's will in order to consider it. And I pray that as we unpack these truths, and this truth, considering the will of God, that God would give us some clarity concerning his will. But also, if we leave here a little bit confused, I think that's also a good thing because we're not dealing with the will of man. We're dealing with the will of God. We're dealing with the will of a glorious and gracious and great and amazing God. Therefore, if that confuses us a little bit, it's probably a good thing. So how are we supposed to be filled with the knowledge of his will that, that Paul talks about? And this is where we're reminded that God's word is deeply concerned with God's will. And when we speak of God's will, God's word speaks of God's will in two different ways or, or two different pictures of God's will. And I think it's important that we understand. when So when God's word is talking about God's will, it does so in two ways. I'm going to show you those two ways on the screen. First, it talks about the sovereign or hidden will of God. God. So the first picture of God's will is the sovereign or the hidden will of God. And God's sovereign will is that will by which he brings to pass whatever he wants to in this world. 
whatever he wants to. Psalm 135 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. That means everywhere, anywhere God wants his will done, it will be, be done. So just think about that, that picture. When God commanded light to shine out of darkness, the darkness had no power to resist God's command. The light came on. The sovereign power of God was on display in that moment. God didn't persuade the light to shine. God didn't say, light, would you please shine so you make me look good? God didn't do that. God said light, and boom, it, there was light. This is the picture of God's power. It's the picture of when God says something, it is going to happen. God didn't have to negotiate with the elemental powers of the universe for them to do what he created them to do. They do what he created them to do because that's how he created them to work and to move. And even a greater way, God did not achieve the plan of redemption for us by trial and error. The cross was not a cosmic accident that God had to somehow work out for his benefit. All of these things were decreed absolutely by God. There is a God, brothers and sisters, who is sovereign over us, whose will is greater than ours. Our will will never restrict God's will. Our will will never restrict God's will. If somehow tomorrow you woke up and say, I don't want to believe in God today or evermore, guess what? God would still be God. He would still be God, as if we don't take anything away from him at all. Sometimes we think we have way more power than, than we, we do. But understand this, God is sovereign, we're subordinate. God is sovereign, we are subordinate. Therefore, we need to stand in amazement at the sovereign will of God, by which God um, will accomplish everything that he decrees in this world. But it's, it's his sovereign will. It's his hidden will. We don't know everything that God um, has ordained, but we know that what God has ordained is going to happen. But that leads us to the second picture of God's will in the word, which is the spoken or the revealed will of God. So the God's spoken or God's revealed will is the will of God that is found very clearly in the word of God. And unlike God's sovereign will, this is the will of God that can be broken. This is the will of God that can be um, disobeyed. This is the will of God that might not always happen. When we think about the way God's will is revealed in God's word, this is God's rule of, of righteousness for your life and for my life. So just, just follow with me here. It is God's will that once we are saved, we don't pursue sin. It's God's will that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's God's will that we have no other gods before him. It is God's will that we love our neighbor as ourselves. It's, God, it's God's will that we refrain from stealing, from lying, from, from coveting, and the list can go on and on. Yet the reality is every single one of us in this room has violated the will of God in every single one of those areas. Every single one of those areas, we have all violated the will of God. But let me tell you, the, the greatest tragedy is oftentimes in the Christian life, we have a preoccupation with the sovereign will of God while ignoring the revealed will of God. Meaning, we are preoccupied by wanting to peek behind the curtain. We want to know our horoscope. We want to know what's going to happen in our lives next week, next month, next year, and we are preoccupied with that. And let me tell you what we're ignoring. We're ignoring what God has told us to do right now. 
We're ignoring. Let me give you a nugget. Here's a great nugget of truth. and Just hold on to this one. If you obey God's word, his will will find you. Obey God's word and his will will find you. This is the picture here. Instead of us wondering, what's God's will? What's God's will? What's God's will? Obey his word. Obey his word and you will be right in the middle of his will. You'll be right where God has for you to be. Therefore, we, we must act in obedience to how God has revealed himself in his word. But before we move on, I, I want you to think about Matthew 26. Think about Jesus' prayer in the garden. Think about four words. and Some of you know them as thy will be done or your will be done. Jesus praying to the Father, thy will be done. Not my will, but thine be done. And Jesus isn't praying these words because he wanted to be released from God's will. He's praying these words because he understands the personal cost of God's will. But follow with me here. If Jesus struggled with the will of God, do you think we might struggle with the will of God at times? If Jesus struggled, if, if it was difficult for Jesus to pray those four words, do you think it's always going to be easy for us to pray those four words? The, the reality is there will be difficulty. There will even be suffering at times inside of the will of God. Remember, God had one son without sin, but he didn't have one son without suffering. Every child of God has to walk through suffering. But here's what we know. The will of God, the will of God is as trustworthy as the character of God. We can trust his character and we can trust his will. We can trust his will. Therefore, we are called to rescue from darkness that we might walk in the will of God. Which leads us to the second truth, which is this. We have been rescued from darkness so that we might increase in the knowledge of God. And this is where it gets really, really good. We are called to increase in the knowledge of God. And before we go any further, let me say this. Knowing God's will is secondary. It's secondary to simply knowing God. It's secondary to knowing God. Paul writes, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So we're called on to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? It means that we are not walk, walking as if we're worthy. We're walking knowing that he is worthy. Here's a good question for us. Do people ever walk away from us going, man, the God that he serves is amazing. Or the God that she serves is so gracious and merciful and compassionate. Do people walk away from us saying those words, if I could only know the God they serve? And this is what it means for us to walk worthy, not of ourselves. We're walking worthy of him. He is the one that's altogether worthy. And then we're called here to bear fruit. And if we read this, just follow with me here. If we read this and we get into verse 10, it kind of seems like it goes this way. We walk, we're fully pleasing to God, we bear fruit, and then it says, and increase in the knowledge of God. And if we're not careful, we read that as if once we walk, then we please God, we're bearing fruit, and then as we're bearing fruit, then we come to know God. But that's not the point here. That's not what it's saying. Bearing fruit does not lead to the knowledge of God. It is the knowledge of God that leads us to bearing fruit. Or another way of saying it is this. Doing good works does not lead us to God. 
Knowing God leads us into good works. The, don't miss this. The point is that one is the gospel, the other is religion, and religion will kill you. Religion, you will die in your religion. Only the gospel can transform our lives. And it's unbelievably important that we get this. We do not do works in order to fall in love with God. No, we fall in love with God and we're able to do good works. And we fall in love with God and we're transformed by the one that we fall in love with. So think about it. How are we transformed? How is your life and my life transformed? And here's the answer. By looking and savoring and wanting God. We want Him. One pastor put it this way. I love this. It says, if you ever go into some type of recovery, or if you go into marital counseling, and your mindset is, fix this problem. Whatever this problem is, it has been my experience that it rarely works, and you tend to bail quickly. In fact, let me just say this. When I have people come and sit in my office... I always ask them, what do you want? And if their answer is, I just want things back to the way they were, I always say, then I can't help you because the way things were got you to this point. Therefore, if that's all you want, then you don't need me. You don't need me. If that's all you want, you will be back right where you are. So just, just understand that. But then he goes on to say this. If you go in and say, I want to know who God is. I want to know what God is like, then you have a tendency to stay with it longer because what you're doing is getting yourself under the waterfall of who God is and you're getting swept up and cleaned by who God is and not trying to manage your own behavior. The point is, brothers and sisters, we are able to know God. Tomorrow, tomorrow represents one year from when Misty and myself jumped on a, a plane and headed to India um, to pick up Malachi. We're ce celebrating Gotcha Day um, this week. So thankful for that. But while we were in India, we had a couple people that would tell us, they said, um, you know, a lot of Indians do not agree with what you're doing, and they think that what you're doing is you're picking up this boy, taking him back to America to be your slaves. That's what they think, that you're just coming to get him to be your slaves. And they would say, we know better than that, but just want to let you know just how people think. And I'm thinking to myself, if they could see it now, I mean, here's the point. Four people in the Strickland household did not get a little slave in Malachi. Um, Malachi got him four slaves in the Strickland household. I mean, he tells us what to do. He's a bossy little sucker. And the other day, I, it's so funny, I'm reading, I'm studying the uh, other day in the morning, kind of really early in the morning, I'm studying this, and I focus on this picture of knowing God, and all of a sudden I hear the words of Malachi from his bed going, Dad, come! But he does, he summons us to himself. So I come in, and um, he, he's up in his bed, and I don't know what led me to do it, but I go, hey, buddy, do you want Daddy's hand? And he goes, no. And I said, do you want Daddy's foot and he said no and we go back and forth and finally I said well buddy what do you want and he said I just want you daddy and sometimes if we're not careful if we're not careful we say to God God I want your hand and what you can give me or God I want your feet and where you can carry me but the problem is we miss God I just want you I just want you God, I just want you. That's all I want in this. That's all I need in this. Think about this. If God in Christ has done for us what the word says he has done for us, and, and if we are able to know him, then we don't just stop at knowing stuff about him. We go way further than that. We get to know God. 
We get to know him so that we've been rescued from darkness so that we might increase in the knowledge of God. We're able to know him. I think of the words of Paul that says that I may know him. Just want to know him. Just like Malachi, I just want, just want you, Daddy. Just want you. It's all we want. It's all we desire. Which leads us to the last truth. We have been rescued from darkness so that we might celebrate the gospel of God. We want to celebrate this. Look at verses 12 through 14. I kind of left some off on the screen, so just, just read this. Look with me. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. So just stop for just a second. Not only have are we unqualified, because of our sin, we've been disqualified. So we've been disqualified. So God has qualified us, listen, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, not in darkness. He has delivered us, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He has transferred and changed our address. We are not living where we once were. We aren't who we once were. And then he says this, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know what I used to believe? I used to believe, like, like many people who, who grew up in church, that the, the gospel was simply for non-Christians. Um, and it's something they had to believe in order to be saved. But then after God saves you, you don't really need the gospel anymore. Now I realize how wrong I, I was. And I love what Tim Keller said um, back uh, a while back. He said this, The gospel is not simply the ABCs of salvation. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. Once God saves us, he does not then move us beyond the gospel into something different, but he moves us more deeply into the gospel. So the gospel doesn't simply ignite the Christian life it's the fuel that keeps us going in our Christian lives. The gospel isn't just the power of God to save us. It's the power of God to grow us and to keep us. But the question we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, is this. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I think it's a question we have to ask because there are many people today that are in the church that couldn't answer the question. They don't know what the gospel is. And the picture is this, the gospel is the good news that the holy, gracious, good, all-powerful God who created everything in this world under his perfect design. This is the picture, God's perfect design creating everything in the world. That God graciously and lovingly looked upon sinful mankind. So sinful man, us, we all just like Adam and Eve looked God right in the face, we pointed our finger at God and we said, no, no, God, no. I want to do this my way. We all have done that, yet God has lovingly and graciously looked upon us and in his love and in his grace, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to us. 
Jesus was born of a virgin. We don't, don't want to leave that out. We never leave um, that picture out of the gospel. And Jesus came and he lived a life that we could not live. He lived a life of total perfection. He lived a life where he fulfilled the righteousness of God. And then he died a death that none of us could die, a death for the sins of the world in which he fulfilled and took on and satisfied the wrath of God that was due us. And just think about this. Just follow with me here because I think we're going to get a little deeper than maybe some of us go. What was it about Jesus's death that makes it possible for every single person in this room to be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son? What is it about the cross that allows us to have redemption, the forgiveness of sins? What was so significant about what happened at the cross that makes it possible for all people, people now and people then, to be saved from their sins by it? So what happened at the cross that brings salvation to all who believe? And this is where we need to be reminded that we are not saved from our sin because Jesus was falsely tried and sentenced to death. We're not saved from our sin because they put a crown on Jesus' head. We're not saved from our sin because they beat him, mocked him, scourged him, and spit on him. We're not even saved from our sins because they put nails in his hand and feet and put him on the cross. Guess what, brothers and sisters? A lot of people were hung on crosses. A lot of people. So it's not just because he was put on the cross. And we're not saved from our sin because of all the torture that was inflicted upon him. So if that's not what saved us, then what did? And this is where we're able to say with great joy that we are saved from our sin because on the cross, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God for us. In fact, as we said a few weeks ago, the gospel in four words, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Think about Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. According to Isaiah 53.10, listen to these words. Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord, it pleased the Father to crush his son so that he would not have to crush us. Let those words sink in. Yet the gospel doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop that Jesus lived a life we could not live or died a death that we could not die. Jesus also conquered an enemy that we could not conquer. He conquered death and he conquered the grave, proving forever who he is. Who he is. Therefore, we have to realize, as I said before, that we are not just unqualified saviors. We have, because of our sin, been disqualified all together so the the gospel is not a to-do list the gospel doesn't say do this do this do this do this and then you will be saved that's not the gospel the gospel doesn't say do this and do that no the gospel says it is finished don't miss it it is finished the the apostle paul i love this in colossians he never tells us what to do before first telling us what god in christ has done for us This is the picture. This is where we leap off into, not we do this, but this is what Christ has already done for us. Therefore, the gospel is not about God relating to us based on our feats. God relates to us based on what Jesus has done for us. Therefore, the question for us this morning is this. 
What have we done with what Jesus has done for us? What have we done with it? Have we walked in his will of salvation for us? I can say with great confidence that if you're in here today and you aren't saved, it is God's will that you will be saved. He's, in fact, you're here for that very reason. Those that will be in here later, they're here for that very reason, for their salvation. But then for the child of God, here's the question for us. Are we obeying the word of God? Are we obeying his word? Are we doing his will? Are we desiring to know him above everything else? Do we have an appetite to know him? Do we want just what's in his hand or do we want him? Do we want him and and him alone? Have we celebrated the gospel in this way? Have we celebrated the gospel understanding that God did for us what we could never, ever, ever do for ourselves? And then are we sharing the gospel? Let me just say this. People in our world, people around you don't need more religion. They have enough religion to damn them to hell. They don't need religion. They need the gospel. They need the gospel. So we need to use every bit of energy that we have to get the gospel to people who need the gospel. They don't need religious um, rites or religious things. They need to understand what Christ has done for them. And as I said from the beginning, I think sometimes... We, we struggle because we don't understand what we've been rescued from. We don't understand that we've been rescued from the domain of darkness. We've been rescued from our own sin and our own shame and our own guilt. And then we don't realize what we've been rescued for. We've been rescued to walk in the will of God. We've been rescued so that we can know God. We can celebrate what he's done for us and we can share that with, with others. Let me just end today. I, I don't know why I was led to this place, but I, I want to end today with just a, what's called a gospel prayer. And I think sometimes we struggle with what we have in Christ or who we are in Christ or we don't know. And, and we get led to act with God the way the world acts towards us. But I just want to show you four things I think is so good for us to pray um, inside the gospel. First of all, because I am in Christ... There is nothing I have done that could make you love me less and nothing I can do that would make you love me more. Nothing. Nothing we've done that will make him love us less and there's nothing we can do that will make him ever love us more than he loves us right now. Oh, praise be to God for that. Then, secondly, because I am in Christ, you are all I need for everlasting joy. You're all I need. You're all I need now. You're all I need tomorrow and forever. Three, because I'm in Christ, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. We want to share this. We want to serve other people. And then fourth, because I'm in Christ, as I pray, I'll do so according to the compassion that you've shown at the cross and the power that you demonstrated through the resurrection. For it is you who works in me. This isn't God saying to us, you do what you can and I'll catch up with you. (laughs) No. Even in Philippians, it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it doesn't stop there. Then it says this, for it is God who works in you. That's the point. That's the point today, brothers and sisters. God is at work. He's at work. Let's let him work in us and let's let him work through us all for his glory. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning call Brother Frank and the musicians up in this moment and um, whatever the Lord is leading, we're going to encourage you to do what he says. So let's pray together. Father, we
just stand in amazement, God, in who you are and in amazement at what you have done for us. We thank you, God, for doing for us what we could never, ever, ever do for ourselves. But we also thank you, God, that there's nothing in our past or even in our present that would make you love us less than you do right now. And there's nothing that we could ever do that would make you love us more. God, we thank you, Lord, for your love that stretches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. We thank you that your love never comes to an end. God, help us today to walk in your will. Help us today, God, to know you, to want you, oh God. Help us to go beyond just seeing that we need you. And help us, Father, to say that we want you. We want you, God. And help us to celebrate and share what you have done for us through your Son. All for your glory, God. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.